You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Tell you, Chad... Just to let people a little bit behind the curtain here, I showed up on time, knocked on your door, rang your doorbell, and nothing. And I tell you, for a minute there, I was picturing a goodwill hunting scenario. I thought, finally, the day has come where Chad Dundas has just packed up, moved on, no goodbye, no nothing. And, and it was the best part of my day. And then you showed up. Well, it was plausible. Right? It was right. plausible that I might finally just bail and decide to finally take advantage of my genius. Well, I, you had me until that last part. But then I started to think, wait a minute, a more likely scenario, Chad had a stroke. He's in there laying down on the kitchen floor. Cell phone just out of reach. And I'm thinking, how long do I wait before I kick down the door? So when you determined that it was that it was most probable that I had had a stroke, that's when you decided to just sort of sit down on the front steps? And take five? If you'll let nature all, take its course? Check the record, bud. I sent you a text. I'll, I will read this text out loud right now. It says, Are you dead on the kitchen floor in there? Question mark. Grown twice for yes. So it, there I am. Welfare check. That's, that's called a welfare check. On the verge of checking out on the floor in the kitchen, reaching for my phone, trying to call for help, and I get a, a text from you. You think that that, that helps me or... I, I mean, I don't want to call myself a hero. That's for other people to say. Uh, but yeah, I'm a hero, basically. Did it occur to you that maybe I was just suffering from a little bit of scorched earth hangover? Well, that, that was possible. Because uh, Friday night, Ben, we came, we saw, we scorched the earth. It, it is possible that after that experience, you just decided you couldn't do this shit anymore. You couldn't do this <laughs> podcast anymore. And you didn't, have the, you didn't know how to tell me. And that's fair. And so you just you figured you'd just kind of ghost me. What if the night, the night of scorched earth after it was over, I just got in the van and drove? <laughs> you maybe you blacked out. You yeah. started out thinking like, why were the horses wearing sheets? And then the next thing you know, you're in Missouri, no memory of how you got there. See, for the people who did not or have not yet gone back and watched our live stream of scorched earth, first of all, you got a lot of catching up to do. Second of all. Uh, I want you to know that I am very serious about this threat. At some point, when we get into this business of mailing out stuff and prizes and gifts from the Co-Main Event Podcast, which we'll do on occasion, at some point, one of you in this process is going to piss us off and make the mistake of giving us your address at around the same time. And you know what's going to happen? You're just going to come home one day and discover that you have been sent, without, without your agreement, a copy of Scorched Earth on DVD. Autographed. That autographed not, by us. Not by Gina Carano. No. But by you and me. That's right. And that will be our personal fuck you for whatever it is you did to piss us off. We will, as an act of malice, send someone this Scorched Earth DVD at some point in the future. You know what? I found the Rotten Tomatoes review of Scorched Earth that I believe referred to it as, quote, kind of fun for a while, end quote. 
to be spot on. Yeah, that's pretty like, accurate. You know, Scorched Earth starts and it's not great, but it, there's some stuff going on that at least maybe you have questions about. Uh, maybe you're intrigued by a few things. Uh, watching Gina Carano and the other uh, actor, quote unquote, actors drop their lines on this thing, you know, passes the time. You get about what the whole thing's like 96 minutes long, something like that. Yeah. You get about 45 minutes in. Yeah. That's, and, that's uh, fair. It kind of, you kind of, it just drops off the table. But speaking of kind of fun for a little while, if people were not in on the live stream, they missed the other big news that coming soon for Patreon subscribers is an episode of the CME Book Club. Now, the only thing we have left to decide here, we talked it over, we decided, you know, with Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz back in the news talking up some trilogy fight, they both have memoirs out there from like 10 or 12 years ago. We got to pick one of them to read. The only question is how we're going to choose which one. I like your uh, your enthusiasm for memoir. Yeah. You know, you're not going to put an R on there. No. And I'm not going to call it an autobiography because I want to respect the art that clearly went in to Iceman, My Fighting Life by Chuck Liddell and whoever actually wrote it. I mean, the truth is you, you, we can't lose at this point. No. Either the Chuck Liddell memoir or the Tito Ortiz autobiography. Uh, it's going to be a huge win for us. It's going to be a home run. And everybody is going to want to get in. on Because the book club episode, uh, when we read Bar Brawler, may be the best thing this podcast has ever done. So what do we do? Do we wait for Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz to sign on the dotted line? Well, we might wait a long time, as in forever, for that to happen. Well, um, do we want to like have this book club thing and read the Chuck Liddell and or Tito Ortiz uh, memoir? And then for not, to have no... For no, there's no way no this trilogy could be for fight? nothing. What if, what if no trilogy fight materializes? Are we still cool with it? Well, then we will have enriched our lives by reading this book. Either way, it doesn't matter. And I think we're going to want to get cracking on this. I don't think you're going to want to wait for two guys in their mid to late 40s to actually get together and fight each other. And I think, you know, worst case scenario, I seem to recall reading a bit of Chuck Liddell's uh, memoir back when it first came out. Is there a story in there that he tells about uh, having sex with two women at the same time while doing a phone interview with a radio station the morning after a title defense? Yes. It's basically the only thing I remember about uh, reading a little bit of that book so I could do a review. So, again, there's no way for us to go wrong here. We just got to figure out which one we're going to read with help from the CME universe, and then we get cracking. Are we going to put it up to a vote, a popular vote? I guess. I mean, I feel like we may, we may have lost people's trust after we put the Gina Carano thing up for a vote and then we watched Scorched Earth, which wasn't even on the ballot. Well, new shit had come to light, That's man. true. We got music this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from down there in Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear, you can check him out on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you all know by now, that's the word though with an A. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Kamaru Usman defeated Damian Maya on Saturday in the main event of UFC Fight Night 129, and it was not great. But that alone makes it interesting to talk about. And in round number two, Crow Cops martial times are on hold due to an injury. But never fear, the young vagabond Gegard Mousasi guns for middleweight gold against Rafael Carvalho on Friday at Bellator 200. Hashtag, would you still watch? And in round number three, the Wonder Boy takes on an opponent 10 years his junior when Stephen Thompson meets Darren Till at Fight Night 130 from jolly old England. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time... 
Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dean Whitehead, who writes, Well, Dominic Reyes went out there and starched Jared Cannonier this weekend in just under three minutes. Don't look now, but Reyes is 9-0 and professionally and 3-0 and in the UFC with three first-round finishes. With the lack of depth at 205 in the UFC, somehow Jan Blokovic is ranked number five. Is there any reason to believe that Reyes can be a capital G guy and make a run in this division? Also, do we think his nickname, quote-unquote, The Devastator? What do we think of his nickname, The Devastator? Are you digging this, or can we do better? Please discuss, if you will. Uh, do you want to guess which Premier League team Dean Whitehead plays for? Because it is the fakest-sounding one yet. Uh... Clifton on Pumphrey. That's honestly slightly more realistic. Huddersfield Town. Okay, that's not real. Come on. It's like just a bunch of hobbits running around. What is that? Huddersfield Town. What kind of Middle-earth bullshit is that? What do we think about the devastator, Ben? Dominic Reyes. I mean, were they going through just the alliteration there? I think so, probably. Dominic the Devastator? Devastator Dominic Reyes? Well, if you were going to do alliteration, do you think it would be better to do the Devastator or just Devastating Dominic Reyes? Well, okay. There you go. I mean, we're already workshopping this thing. Yeah. That... Although I'm inclined to say the Devastator's not terrible. It's not like there's a, a, a herd of Devastators See, out there. that's what I was going to say. It does have... It stands out. It's not just being like another pit bull. At the same time, it's one of those nicknames where I can't ever imagine somebody just calling you that. True. That doesn't have to be the goal of every nickname. Like, every nickname doesn't have to be like a Shogun Hua or a Rampage Jackson style thing. But it just, it does have the problem that some nicknames have where it sounds like something you and your buddies came up with just trying super hard to be cool. So what do we think about Dominic the Devastator Reyes's uh, upside in the light heavyweight division as Clifton on Pumphrey midfielder? Dean Whitehead has written in to ask us about. He is, in fact, 3-0 and now in the UFC, 9-0 and overall. Uh... Mostly stoppage victories. All but one of his career fights, I believe, are stoppage victories. I think he only has one decision. All his fights in the UFC, he's, he's stopped in the first round. 28 years old, six foot four, uh, like, uh, has a pretty good frame for this, uh, light heavyweight division. He's, he's lanky without being skinny. Uh, good athlete. You can see, and he just sharp stand up skills. Uh, doesn't seem to have too many glaring weaknesses. So, uh, looks like he graduated from Stony Brook University in IT technical support. Huh. So there you go with that. How about that? One of the good, one of the things, okay, let's say two of the things Dominic Reyes has going for him. Age, not even 30 years old yet. And he's fighting, as we have all said, in this 205 pound division where you don't need to have a lot going for you. Nope. To become a capital G guy. Right. Well, and he wins this fight, wins it in the first round. I mean, you could kind of complain about the stoppage, but it looked like we were headed that direction anyway, even if it didn't come right then. Uh, but, Afterwards, you know, he's, he's talking, he's standing there and you start to realize, like, for me at least, I wrote about this afterwards. I'm like, feel like I'm looking up suddenly to be like, oh, this guy, maybe we have some signs of life here at light heavyweight. And then he calls out Jordan Johnson, which again, hey, you're doing a lot of things right. You go out there, you finish a guy in the first round and you have a name that you want to say in the post fight interview. Although I saw people on Twitter reacting by being kind of like, who? Are we sure that that's a, a UFC fighter? And I do remember Jordan Johnson popping up every once in a while. So, yeah, okay. Uh, no hurry, I guess, is what we're getting out of this. Is Dominic Reyes sounds like maybe going to take his time to work as, you know, he wasn't like, John Jones, get your shit together. Uh, come back here and uh, I'm going to kick your ass. But, you know, he's he's got somebody in mind. 
it's encouraging. It makes you think we have some some stuff going on. There might be a future at light heavyweight. But then I also found myself wondering, did anybody see it? Because this fight card, and then we can talk a little bit about it later when we talk about some of the other fights from it, but had several fighters where you're like, okay, young up and coming talent. Yeah, here it is. Here's what the you're hoping for is going to turn into good prospects in the future. But when it's on a fight card like this, where there weren't a whole lot of reasons to watch and not a whole lot of big name value, you know, you'd be surprised if the ratings turn out to be any good for it. And I understand the logic where with a fight card like this, this is where you want to give this, this up and coming talent a chance to shine. But if you put them all in this fight card together, instead of kind of sprinkling them on other bigger cards where people are actually going to watch, do you waste it? Because they have these good moments. They're giving you a reason to th- think and care about them in the future. But if nobody watches, it's trees falling in the forest. Yeah. I don't know that I would say wasted, but I, clearly this isn't the breakthrough moment, right, for Dominic Reyes. Uh, we're not all going to be talking about the first-round TKO uh, that he scored at UFC Fight Night 129. And frankly, the first three uh, UFC victories, all of them first-round stoppages, but you got Joaquin Christensen, Jeremy Kimball, uh, and Jared Cannonier last night, or Saturday night, I'm sorry, uh, it's not like he is fighting the cream of the crop in the light heavyweight division, not even uh, really fighting guys who are in the mix. And then, like you said, he goes and calls out Jordan Johnson, who is technically ranked. Is he? Number 15 out of 15. Okay. In the UFC official light heavyweight rankings. But, yeah, man, like if you're Dominic Reyes and you want to be number one with a bullet, you wanna, you're, you're on a come up here, you would think somebody like maybe a Tyson Pedro, Patrick Cummins, uh, even Corey Anderson or like OSP or somebody like that would make sense as a call out. So it does. I mean, I don't know that we want to read too much into it, but I think you're right. It kind of makes it seem like maybe Dominic Reyes is, is taking his time here. Uh, maybe he knows more than we do. Frankly. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's only, he's it's his ninth professional fight. He's been at it slightly less than four years as a pro. Also, nobody's going to call out Corey Anderson because a lot of ways for you to look bad in that fight. And even if you win, it, a lot of ways for it to not look that great. I, I mean, it's not a bad idea to have to go on there, and especially he's like, hey, you know, Jordan Johnson, he was talking shit online. I want to fight that guy. Like, okay, I didn't have really a reason to care too much about either one of you, but maybe you can give us one. What about this? What if he had gone out there and called out the legend Shogun Hua? Would we feel more positive about that, or would we be like, no, Dominic Reyes, low hanging fruit? Yes, yeah. It, come on, I would be like mildly offended for you to go out there and call out Shogun because everybody knows what you're trying to do there. I, I mean, I respect it more to call out another guy who he feels like is around the same level, like another young guy, and like, hey, let's let's start ourselves some new beefs. You know, let's let's be the the Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz of the coming age rather than just trying to pick on an actual Chuck Liddell or Tito Ortiz as they got one foot in the retirement home. So maybe Jordan Johnson wasn't that bad. Yeah, maybe not. I feel like we're making a lot of rules now. For guys to uh, to call people out after their fights. Are we writing this down? Well, first, this you, down. You, you, you want it to be somebody we know. Ideally. You want to be able to pronounce it. Okay. So Godzimarad Antigulov is out. Okay. Sitting there ranked number 13. So I'm just saying, if, you, if you're Dominic Reyes and you look around the division looking for people that you might want to call out, Jordan Johnson, Jean Vellante, Tyson Pedro, Patrick Cummins, Misha Sirkinov, Corey Anderson, Ovin St. Preux. I just read out the bottom half of the light heavyweight rankings. Okay. Other than that, calling out the legend, Shogun Hua Don't for do one it. last dance. Don't do it. Next question this week comes to us from David Hassan. He writes, I'm about to do the thing, and I just can't help myself. Is Tatiana Suarez a future champ? 
six and zero with four finishes, nine and zero with six finishes if you count her Ultimate Fighter run. Uh, she has the highest level wrestling credentials. She has only been training MMA for four years. As long as she doesn't get trapped into thinking she can strike with the top of the food chain strikers, I don't see her losing. She's Mexican. She's a cancer survivor. She has a story worth telling if the UFC wants to get off their ass. Uh, she seems to have a bit of the overtraining disease that is prevalent in MMA. If she figures this out, I don't see who she can't match. Discourse. Yeah, I thought that was an impressive fight from her. You know, and uh, again, another one where you look at somebody and you think, all right, Here's somebody we might end up caring about as the the years progress. You know, she has that that win on the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, I did not watch any of that, uh, so it feels like you're still doing a thing where you're trying to introduce these people, even though you had a reality show to introduce them. Uh, but now you go out there and just kind of school Alexa Grasso as soon as you get her to the mat. Uh, another fighter who's undefeated. Another fighter with a three fight win streak going on in, in the UFC, and I, I find myself asking the same question. Are you you're getting them exposure? You're pinpointing new people, but are we is anybody finding out about them on fight cards like this? Well, here's what I want to know, Ben. What are we doing with Alexa Grasso here? Because you'll remember when Alexa Grasso came over uh from Invicta, uh and I believe she also had a uh uh a, a big run in Invicta. She was came in with a lot of hype. She was 8-0. Uh, beats Heather Joe Clark in her UFC debut, uh, loses to Felice Herrig, you'll remember, then came back and beat Randa Marcos, although in a fight where Alexa Grasso missed weight. Like, it wasn't all that long ago that we were talking about Alexa Grasso as like a pretty big time prospect in this division. And yet, as they say on the broadcast here against Tatiana Suarez, Suarez was the biggest favorite on the main card at like minus 700. Well, and still, so from a match picking standpoint, what are we doing? Like, it still seemed like, uh, Heading into this fight, if you're following, you know, the buzz on social media and stuff, more people are excited about Alexa Grasso. Like people were right. excited to see Alexa Grasso. I mean, maybe so, the idea there was to, if you've decided, you know, maybe Alexa Grasso is not going to be the thing, but she still has some popularity. Maybe you want to get it to transfer over to Tatiana Suarez. Maybe the problem is you realize Tatiana Suarez, one tough, uh, is undefeated and still nobody cares. Right. So you put her up against Alexa Grasso and now, you come out of this event and people are going, oh, yeah, Tatiana Suarez. But again, like maybe that's true. Maybe we have, if we are UFC matchmakers, maybe we have, for whatever reason, bailed off the Alexa Grasso train in record time, I would say. <laughs> I have not even got to break this out yet. Karen Alexa Grasso Montez. Okay, that's not bad. So let's say we've done that. If we're UFC matchmakers, we've bailed off the Alexa Grasso train. We've decided to give the shine to Tatiana Suarez. Again, we return to your central point. Why do it at UFC Fight Night 129 from Santiago, Chile? Maybe going to be one of the lowest rated cards of the year. Right. Well, I guess what they're thinking is got to do it somewhere. Uh, you you want to put some fights on this, on, on a, a fight card like this. Like You don't have a whole bunch of Chilean fighters that you can offer up to the fans in Santiago, Chile. And so the approach seemed to be, all right. Let's give them anyone we can find south of the U.S. border, and we'll call it good. Uh, and so maybe, you know, you, you felt like, all right, we have uh, some actual prospects in some of these divisions. We don't know what to do with them. We don't, they're not pay-per-view quality, but they are main, main card quality for a fight card like this. And maybe you're hoping, like, that's, that'll help the aggregate will help get people's attention. 
I don't know if that worked necessarily because it seemed like a lot of people looked at this fight card and saw, okay, Demian Maya Kamara Usman is the only fight I care about. I can DVR that shit whether than waiting up until 1 a.m. on the East Coast to actually see it. So I don't know if people are going to necessarily catch on to this stuff yet. Uh, if you're like a, a casual fan, does it seem like you know she's going to show up on the prelims of a pay-per-view or on a main card or something? And does it seem like Tatiana Suarez just stepped out of the head of Zeus? Like you have no idea where she came from or what she's been doing. It's going to feel like that. And to me, it feels like we couldn't wait to light a stick of dynamite under Alexa Grosso. Like, as the UFC, like, we couldn't wait to blow that up for some reason. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I have no idea. Next question this week comes to us from Isaac Spooner. He writes, how about your boy Nikki Thrills knocking out Fabio Maldonado over the weekend? Started with a groin shot off the very first low kick, which saw Fabs lying on the canvas for the full five and ended with a right hook KO from Krilov uh, to earn him the Fight Nights Global Light Heavyweight Championship. Totally worth the $8 internet pay-per-view stream. Other highlights include the ring announcer's crocodile skin highlighted suit and the English language commentary comparing Maldonado to both Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> I, I got to know, how do you compare Fabio Maldonado to Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes? Uh, well, he's the hillbilly heartthrob, right? Isn't, isn't that Fabio Maldonado? Is it? I thought he was. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But, I did uh, see the, the nut shot, though, that put him down. And when he says laying on the canvas uh, for the full five, he really means it. Like, the, the clip I saw, it looks like Fabio, Fabio Maldonado has been shot by a sniper in the crowd and that is immediately right off the bat groin shot but then yeah uh nikki thrills gets himself that lands that that clean hook on the break and uh knocks him out cold is it starting to look like this was a genius decision by nikita krilov to go over there and you know instead of being another faceless russian dude in the ufc who they didn't care about too much now you're a, you're a capital G guy over in Fight Nights Global. That's what I was going to say. I was going to phrase it the other way about the UFC letting these guys go. Uh, Kyoji Horiguchi, Nikita Krilov going uh, over there to Fight Nights Global. Now he's won four fights in a row, including the first round KO of the big homie, Emmanuel Newton via knee, 43 seconds in. Man, universe really let him down. That's tough. And then you got Fabio Maldonado now, punch, knockout, uh, second round. So Nikita Krilov, yeah, man, he seems like... Uh, Maybe one that got away from the UFC, and uh, maybe you can't really fault him all that much for realizing what we have talked about on the podcast before, that there seems to be a burgeoning uh, MMA scene over there in Russia, and maybe he realized he could be the guy and go over there and make a bunch of money. Okay, but More does, power to him. Does, does the UFC look at that as a missed opportunity, or does the UFC be like, well, hey, they can do more with him? Like, he would not, you know, same thing with Horiguchi, like... There's just only so much we could do with that guy, but a, a promotion, you know, where he's more of a local draw could do a whole lot more with him. Or if you're the UFC, are you feeling like, man, it would have been nice to have Nikki Thrills when we go to Moscow? Maybe. 26 years old, two years less than uh, Dominic Ray, as we were just talking about. It seems like a guy who jumps back and forth between light heavyweight and heavyweight uh, might be a guy you'd want to have, as far as I'm concerned. I don't know. Next question this week comes to us from Rusty Poor. He writes, guys, I did something this week and I haven't done in almost 10 years. I purposefully did not watch a UFC event. I actually lived, grilled out with my family, caught up on bad sitcoms with my wife. Does this mean my shit-eating wild man status is in jeopardy? On one hand, I feel like I betrayed a loved one by not spending time with them, parenthetically the UFC. On the other hand, I feel that this further goes to show the weakness of UFC TV cards and how it is making skipping an option, skipping as an option a no-brainer. What are your thoughts? 
I can't say I would have watched this one live if I did not have to do it for a work obligation. Yeah. I would have DVR'd this one, you know, maybe tried to avoid spoilers, at least for the main event, and then I would have actively sought out spoilers to see which of the fights were worth watching uh, and going through afterwards, which... You know, maybe it's not necessarily a killer for the UFC. If I'm still finding out about the people who matter, because, you know, I would have heard, like, okay, Dominic Reyes goes out there and finishes somebody. Tatiana Suarez looked good. I, I probably would have checked out those fights and just not had to sit through all the endless commercials in, in order to do it. So maybe that's not so bad. But there is a danger in just getting people into the habit of thinking, like, well, there's another UFC event, but I can skip it. Is that That is how you lose fans gradually. Yeah, um... And this, I was thinking about this in relation to the ESPN Plus deal that we talked about a little bit last week. I can't remember exactly the detail that we got into it uh, about the the ESPN Plus deal. But then we were talking off air, uh, kind of making the point that the UFC is going to get paid per fight card by ESPN for the streaming service. Essentially, what they get paid now for a UFC pay per view that does what, like uh, three hundred thousand buys, essentially, yeah. which is not every one uh, at this point. And that makes you wonder exactly what the focus of UFC matchmaking and, uh, you know, the strength of cards is going to be moving forward in, in 2019. Because on one hand, maybe it'll be good for fans because if ESPN is paying this kind of money, maybe you will get like a fight night 129 quality broadcast on ESPN plus, but maybe it would have, uh, Amanda Nunez title defense as the uh, as the main event in theory but there's another aspect to it that I can't remember if we talked about last week or not Ben that perhaps the idea that the UFC just got paid all this money to put its content on a streaming service from ESPN might change the direction uh not only of star building for the UFC but but of like card the construction of cards and matchmaking in a way that uh hardcore fans and casual fans alike may not find all that uh, palatable. Right. Well, and another thing I think you have to consider, Danny Downs and I talked a little bit about this in our column this week, is uh, if the plan, and as it's laid out right now that we've heard, it, the plan is for beginning in 2019, you got 15 events on ESPN+, Plus, 15 events on whoever ends up being the broadcast TV partner, and then 12 pay-per-views. Uh, so 42 events, and of those that 42 you're looking at 27 of them that are behind one paywall or another you know whether it's the $5 a month ESPN plus subscription or the you know the 65 bucks uh for the pay-per-views but that is a, a noted increase because that's almost two thirds of UFC events where you got to pay something in, in order to watch at least the main card portion of it whereas if you looked at you know 2017 it was around 40% between like fight pass events and pay-per-views where there was like a paywall involved in order to get there. And if you don't have something that makes it seem like, well, I got to watch this, you can't do the, well, it's okay. I care about one or two fights. I'll DVR it and I'll go back. That gets tougher to do when you're charging money for the shit. It, it m makes me have a different calculation in my mind. If I'm a fan thinking about, do I want to grill on the deck and spend some time with my actual loved ones? Uh, on a Saturday night for a change, or do I want to be right there in my seat for the UFC as usual? If you're asking me to, to pay a subscription fee and the fight cards are still, you know, Santiago Chile quality, then I'm, I'm asking myself some hard questions. Right. And the thing that I was trying to get at, and the thing it makes me wonder is, does it fundamentally change the way the UFC thinks about its product and that it's getting all this money now for these streaming service cards? Uh, because previous to this, almost all of the conversation about the UFC business model has, 
you know, centered around big stars like Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, right. Brock Lesnar, and the importance of of cultivating those figures that can kind of carry the load on pay per view. Uh, so that was that's sort of like the uh, the pay per view model. And then you know, previous to the Fox deal, it kind of felt like the UFC just tried to stack all of its like Spike TV cards with people that you knew, but also with awesome fights. Some of that obviously has changed. Uh, as we have, have moved into the Fox deal and the number of events per year went up and up and all that stuff. My question is, do we reach a point where the UFC is less interested with either cultivating stars or putting on awesome fight cards as it is merely producing a shitload of content that it can sell to these various bidders that then they can feature on their streaming services and wherever else? Yeah, I think you kind of have to get moved in that, in that direction if you're the UFC, don't you? Because now you'll be spreading out your content across three different platforms, pay-per-view, broadcast, streaming. It has to change the way you focus on it. Uh, but the problem is like, you're still going to want to sell those pay-per-views. If you're doing 12 pay-per-views a year, you're still going to want to at least have a couple home runs in there. You need to have some big stars in there. I guess, though, it becomes – you get insulated a little bit from the nature of the pay-per-view business where you can, you can line up a great pay-per-view and maybe it just doesn't perform. Maybe there's an injury or two that, that knocks things out. Uh, Deals like this, where you're getting paid regardless, that does help you out a little bit so you don't have to be like quite such a, a, a victim to that feast or famine mentality that can go on in pay-per-view. What I wonder, though, is how much, say, ESPN and whoever ends up being the broadcast partner gets over some of these fight cards. Because if right. you're ESPN Plus and you're paying $150 million a year to stream uh, UFC events, you're not going to be content with just a bunch of you know former tough holdovers hanging around in the UFC who nobody cares about. Last question this week comes to us from Brandon Boyd. He writes, Ariel Helwani and Chael Sonnen are teaming up and hosting a podcast on ESPN+. Plus. Add to that the new deal with the UFC, and you have what looks to me more like more than just the UFC using the UFC as a loss leader, as Ben proclaimed last week. Is ESPN looking to do more with the UFC, or is this a play to get in the good graces of Endeavor? Discuss por favor. Well, first of all, to correct Brandon Boyd on a fact... Uh, what I was saying is that Dave Meltzer had used the term loss leader as a, you know, by potential loss leader as one way of thinking about how ESPN might be looking at the UFC. But that didn't mean that they didn't care about the UFC, just that they felt like even if they might be overpaying for it, um, it would get people in the door of this streaming service because the UFC has a really hardcore audience that will follow it all over the place. Uh, but to me, them hiring Ariel Helwani and then having him host a, a podcast with Chael Sonnen, I guess it's not that surprising. It's just that when the... You know, historically, whenever ESPN sees an opportunity to make money off of a sport, then it gets a lot more interested in having coverage and content around that sport. And yeah. this is no different. Uh, it's interesting. Oh, it's big news right here in the mixed martial arts media landscape right. to have Ariel Helwani, the biggest, highest profile uh, reporter in the game, cross over from his longtime home at Vox and MMAfighting.com. Uh, it will mean... Uh, the end of the MMA fortnight as we know it, although I think... Uh, he'll just do the MMA fortnight basically for ESPN. Right. It sounds like Ariel's going to have a number of duties over there, at least from his own tweet. He'll have uh, an essentially the new version of the MMA fortnight. He'll have the podcast with Chael Sonnen. And then I think they're going to have like a, a TV show like a, a or a video show, I guess it would be, on ESPN+, Plus, which... I, I I don't know exactly how to think of it. It will be Ariel and Chael hosting it, but I guess it will be sort of like the new version of uh, UFC Tonight or whatever. I can't remember what the remember ESPN used to have uh, a show, an, an MMA show that I, I'm blanking on the uh, on the name of it right now, which is embarrassing since I work there. 
Uh, MMA Live? MMA Live, there you go. So it's going to be like the new version of MMA Live. Uh, so that's, I mean, it makes it look like ESPN is, is getting back in the MMA business or at least getting in, into the UFC business, uh, in a way that could be heartening, uh, for people who wondered what the future was and, 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 you know, what, what the new broadcast deals were going to affect in terms of the lay of the land, uh, as a guy who got essentially laid off by ESPN circa 2010. Uh, and uh, I think also as a guy who personally, uh, advocated that we should try to hire Ariel Hawani when, uh, when the question was raised, like, what do we need to do to beef up our MMA coverage? And I was like, I, I don't know, hire Ariel Hawani. So, like, uh, it's interesting to me to see. They ESPN. listen to you. Good work. Yeah, no, I'm sure that it was that memo. They were like, remember what Chad Dunn said? Eight years later. Uh, it's interesting to see the the pendulum sort of swing back the other way now, as it seems that ESPN is, is at least in a small way, getting back in the MMA business. And they just what, kicked over uh, that, though? Uh, Wags, also. That's right. It's, Jeff uh, Wagenheim. going to be a... Uh, full-time MMA reporter over there also. Wouldn't you expect that, though, when, once you get in, in your ESPN, if you're deciding, like, okay, we're going to be airing UFC events. We want it to do well. We're going to make money if it does well. Uh, therefore, we should be treating it like a real sport and covering it that way. And it, it helps them. So, I mean, that's right. always what ESPN does. Sure. I would have thought they would have done that a while ago. And I guess it, they just need to, needed to literally get in the business to get in the business. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short, it's informative, we would love to tell you it's funny, and if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, it was supposed to be Santiago Ponzinibbio out there with Kamaru Usman in the main event of UFC 129 from Santiago, Chile this past Saturday night. Unfortunately, Ponzinibbio pulled out a few weeks ago with an injury and was replaced by Damian Maya. Uh, Usman pretty much uh, wore him around like a button for most of their 20-minute, 20 25-minute fight. Uh, he advanced his record to 13-1, and seven in a row in the UFC. Uh, if you didn't know it by now, Kamaru Usman is a guy to keep your eye on in this welterweight division. Uh, he's a great wrestler. He's got some uh, some powerful stand-up skills. He's good on the mic. Uh, it almost seems to me like, in many ways, Kamaru Usman is the total package. But what did you see out there this weekend in this fight against Damian Maya, who, frankly, like you said about Corey Anderson earlier, is a guy who's either going to beat you or uh, maybe can make you look kind of bad? I'm done watching Demi and Maya against wrestlers. I'm done with it. If you if you have too good of a takedown defense, I, you're off the list. You don't get to play the Demi and Maya game. And we saw some incredible takedown defense from Kamaru Usman in this fight. Uh, they highlighted a couple of exchanges on the broadcast. There's one where Maya like tries to chain together four or five different takedowns. Yeah, double leg uh, switches to a uh, like a trip tries to go in again and Usman is just not having it even though Maya like gets in pretty deep with a uh you know I believe he like ducks a punch and gets inside 
Uh, but yeah, Usman just too high level, too strong to get it done. Well, uh, impressive in that regard, as far as I was concerned. And you look at uh, Demian Maya's last three fights, right? Kamaru Usman, Colby Covington, Tyrone Woodley. Those are kind of just bad matchups for Demian Maya. It also though seems like he has, seems really singularly focused on finishing his contract with the UFC. You notice how many times he talked about that, both before and after. Like to reiterate, like after this fight. Not retiring right away, still wants to finish that contract. It's always really interesting to me when older fighters start getting in that mode where they're just like, there's a there's a certain desperation in it. Like, just let me out of here kind of thing. Like, I want to be done with this so that either I can retire or move on to something else or, you know, retire for a little while until somebody makes me an offer, but I don't want to have the UFC contract hanging over my head. Uh, and maybe that motivates you to take a fight on like three weeks notice when they call you up and say, Kamaru Usman, you're like, well, I am trying to get these fights in. So there I go and I take that fight. But man, especially at this point for him, Demian Maya, 40 years old, is a fun guy to watch when you put him in the right kind of fight. But these are the kind of fights where, just like the one with Tyron Woodley, he, I mean, he deserves some of the blame for it, but it's also just like, that's the guy's style. We know this by now. You put him in against guys like that, it is not going to make for a fun time. Yeah, wasn't there an astounding stat floating around about his takedown attempts that he was like 0 for 40 or something like that in his last three fights? I thought I saw it on the internet. I should have pulled it up so we could uh, read it on the show. Instead, I'm do, just going to speculate about it. Do they it. count in that when he lays on the ground and tries to <laughs> beg you to get in his guard? Maybe. Has maybe. that ever once worked? Has ever once a guy been like, get in my guard, and the guy's standing up and you're like, okay, and it's just a, jumps down in there? Certainly not in the modern era, right? And not a guy who knows his business. Uh, one of the things that struck me about this fight is how the game has changed, you know, as compared to back in the day when, when specialists like Hoist Gracie, uh, or somebody like that could dominate an MMA fight. And you see it in this fight where in the first round, Damian Maya has Kamara Usman in the abdominal stretch position yes, yes. for a long period of time. Uh, and it's weird because they're in this stalemate and they're stuck and you don't know what's going to happen. And eventually I think rightly, Leon Roberts steps in and calls for a restart. But every time that happens, it just makes me think how different the sport is now than it used to be uh, when they would essentially let those guys hang out in that position indefinitely because who knows what might have happened. We have no idea. Like maybe Damian Maya climbs on his back and chokes him out as far as we know. That's going to break your heart too if you're Damian Maya. I mean, I've got to the guy's back kind of. I'm not totally controlling him there, but this is where I want to be. And the referee comes back and says, no, stand back over here and trade punches with him. Oh, man. That's yeah. just not what you want to hear. Yeah, no, no, not really at all. Uh, Usman gets on the mic after the thing. this thing is over, Ben, uh, and he takes a, kind of an interesting track. He says he is tired of calling people out and then not getting his wish. So he's going to say that those the, the, the welterweights all need to come fight him, which is, you know, when you're not the champ and you're ranked 7th or 8th in the division, I don't know that that's a a powerful bargaining position, <laughs> uh, but it's 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 the way he wanted to go. Uh, you know, the, we just talked about this in relation to like Dominic Reyes and Tatiana Suarez, but like Kamaru Usman is just another guy in the UFC that they have. Who's 13 and one overall seems to have all the talent in the world. Seems like there could be something there if they wanted to latch onto it and try to exploit it. And you just wonder, you know, where he goes from here and what can they do with a guy like that? Yeah. And he is an interesting guy and a lot of like, he has that kind of intensity that makes you really want to pay attention to him. Uh, you know, the last two fights, 
not great. And he they followed kind of a similar pattern too of like a sort of lackluster decision and then he's going to get on the mic afterwards and tell you, you know, about what seems to be at least in this case especially very legitimate health issues saying like he broke both his hands in the fight and but then it's still like hey, I've still I, Despite this thing, I still went out there and dominated. Despite being 30%, I still went out there and, and won the fight. And, you know, MMA fans are not known for loving that approach, even when it is totally legit and based in facts. He did say, I don't want to make excuses. Oh, well, okay. I, but. Okay. He did say that. First of all, and we were talking about this in the MMA junkie crew after the, after the event. Do we have to write out the handbook for how you do this? Because there are ways to do it. The way you do it, you don't stand there afterwards and be like, I think I broke both my hands in that fight. Nobody wants to hear that right then. You you go on the MMA fortnight maybe and you talk about it. Or you have your coach be like, you know what? Kamaru would probably hate that I'm telling you this right now. But the fact is he broke both his hands in that fight. No, I'll tell you what you do if, we're, if we are indeed writing the handbook. Okay. You don't say anything about it in the post-fight interview. Next morning, Instagram pick of the swollen X-rays. hands. X-rays. Or the x-rays. That's what you do. And then you make a crack about how Damian Maya has a hard head and blocks his punches with the frontal lobe, which Usman did in the cage. But like you do it that way, then suddenly everyone's like, Kamaru Usman is a warrior. Yeah. My goodness. Yes. And I believe Jimmy Smith tweeted that he ran into him on the street yeah. the day after the fight and said he couldn't close his hands. So like, I'm thinking there's probably an Instagram pic there. Yeah. No, see, that is the way to do it. And I, do we have to just give this stuff away for free? We have to have to go individually to each fighter and, and lay out the the protocol for how you deal with this stuff. I don't know, but there, did you catch the moment afterwards where Kamaru Usman is talking to the post fight show and they're like, "Hey, Tyron Woodley is back in the studio. What do you want to say to him?" And it's not exactly a call out. Uh, he does again the thing, same thing he said in the cage, where he was like, "My social media ch- handle hasn't changed since I got in the game," which is a weird thing to say, uh, but. I guess referring to the part of his Twitter bio that says that he's coming for the welterweight gold or something. And Tyron Woodley's like, okay, yeah. First, he he rolls his eyes as comically as he can, which is not a bad move for the champ. Uh, And then says like, oh, yeah, hey, you won, whatever. But I, you know, congratulations to you. If you do some of that stuff against me, uh, you're going to be waking up with the smelling salts. But he's also just like, hey, you get there. And I can't wait to see you across the cage. And it led me to wonder, get where? Like, let's not act like this is a thing where you have to achieve X, Y, and Z, and then you'll get a title shot. That's not really how it's working these days, and especially it doesn't seem to be how it's working in the welterweight division. Yeah, and and he, there was a time where maybe beating Damian Maia in this fashion might punch your ticket for a title shot, but I don't think that exists anymore. I It feels like you got to put Usman in there with somebody like Robbie Lawler or... Uh, you know, Rafael Dos Anjos or the winner of Stephen Thompson, Darren Till, and make like a real number one contender fight, uh, especially in this welterweight division where it seems like we've been directionless for so long. Just right. because with so know, much talent, too. Yeah. Woodley's been been out of action. We haven't really known exactly what to do. Uh, I would like someone to make a gif of him rolling his eyes because I feel like I could have some uses for that. Uh, but it just seems like it would be awesome if you had Usman fight. Well, let's just say the winner of Wonder Boy and Darren Till, who we're going to talk about. Uh, later in the show, but like, give me a give me a a real number one contender fight. That would that would make me happy as far as one seventy is concerned. If I'm Robbie Lawler and they call me to fight Kamaru Usman, I'm telling them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> and then, do you think you're going to get cut, Yeah, Rodriguez oh, style? Cut me if I'm Robbie Lawler. <laughs> cut me, motherfucker. I got Scott Coker on speed dial. <laughs> that is true. He Wish pro- you would. Yeah, he probably he probably would. Um, 
You want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we can move on to round number two. Sure. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, I know, Chad, we were just talking about Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz. I know you saw your boy Tito Ortiz show up on TMZ Sports. He's sitting there. He's wearing the polo shirt from the Tito Ortiz Auto Group, which act like you knew that was a thing. Okay. Does that uh, mean I can go buy a car at the Tito Ortiz Auto Group? I'm assuming somewhere around Big Bear, California. Uh, maybe more like Huntington Beach, but uh, yeah. Well, he's maybe he's got. It says group. Maybe he's got a string of them. Sure, maybe he does. I mean, it has like forty something followers on Twitter or something. So I don't know if it's really taken off, but he does Who's have a logo in a car lot. He does have a logo on his polo shirt. Uh, he's sitting there. He's telling TMZ Sports that this fight with Chuck Liddell, the trilogy fight, absolutely will happen. It's going to be the hugest fight in MMA history. That's a quote from Tito Ortiz. Hugest. Also. Uh, claims, I never got a fair shake when I was with the UFC against Chuck any of the times I ever fought against him. Let's do it under a different promotion. Let's do it under Golden Boy promotion. You fucking kidding me? We're really doing this? Where Tito Ortiz is just kind of like insinuating that maybe uh, it's the UFC's fault that he lost two times to Chuck Liddell? That it was all like the deck was stacked against Tito Ortiz in these fights? You fucking kidding me? And also, though, are you fucking kidding me? Because later on in the interview, he explains that they're going to do a media tour for this fight in which they will, quote, go around to talk smack to build up the fight. Are you fucking kidding me, Tito? You're not supposed to say that. Everybody understands that that's what the deal is, but you're not supposed to say, like, hey, we're just going to go around, talk shit to each other in order to get you you idiots interested in us punching each other in the face. Are you fucking kidding me? That's the subtext, man. you fucking kidding me. Well, Ben, did you see this news broke today that the BBC is going to broadcast Stephen Thompson versus Darren Till on the radio. I did hear that. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I mean, you know that the old man in me actually sort of loves this idea. Oh, yeah. Right? Fight on the radio? Sign me up. But it also makes me wonder, what level of technology are we dealing with across the pond in jolly old England? Is, like, is this normal? Do we, do we broadcast the fights on the radio? Does grandfather gather the family around the hi-fi and we all listen to the bout of fisticuffs on the radio? Are you fucking kidding me? Can I get results via ticker tape? Well, I was just going to say, how about UFC 225? We get a town crier, goes to the town square, and just reads the results off a of ticker tape. I mean, I just saved 65 bucks is what I hear. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, the Marshall Times hit a little bit of a speed bump from Yoko Krokop. He's supposed to come back here, fight Roy Nelson in Bellator 200 to be a uh, alternate for the whole heavyweight Grand Prix kind of thing. That got us excited about the inevitable Fedor versus Krokop finale. Uh, I'm not saying that won't still happen, and in fact, maybe there's an even better chance that it happens now that Krokop does not have to fight Roy Nelson before he gets there. First round injury is a shrewd move. It's a shrewd move in terms of the tournament game. Yeah. That's I mean it's kind of feels like a Dundasso qualified move yeah, in a lot of ways. The question is was he getting out the calendar, checking out when the final was going to be, trying to schedule his rehab time. Yeah. Be ready about 3 weeks before the final. I was going to say 6 weeks, but who are we kidding? <laughs> uh now here's what we're looking at for Bellator 200 in jolly old London, England. Main event is the young vagabond, the dreamcatcher himself, Gegard Mousasi, 
against Rafael Carvalho. Uh, you, then you got Michael Page, David Rickles. You got Aaron Chalmers, Ash Griffiths. You got Phil Davis, Linton Vassell. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it's Bellator, so a bunch of other shit. 13 prelim fights available for your viewing pleasure at ParamountNetwork.com. Well, some of those are usually going to be post-limb events, which True. is always a... This is not an unusual approach for Bellator. They've been doing this a lot, uh, especially lately, just having a shitload of prelims. Yes. Many of which sometimes are like local people. Uh, there to sell a few tickets and get kind of basically an audition for Bellator. And make like 200 bucks. Yeah. I guess the question is, Ben, how much steam does Bellator 200 leave if, lose, if any, with the loss of Crow Cop versus Roy Nelson? Were you like champing at the bit to get Crow Cop Roy Nelson? Or, uh, or is this no big deal? Well, the old school fanboy in me is never gonna pass up a chance to see Crow Cop. Even, maybe even especially this renewed Marshall Times. Uh, where suddenly he decided his body could do it after all once he was out out from under uh, UFC and USADA. I was going to watch that. However, I was also trying not to kid myself into thinking that Crow Cop versus Roy Nelson was going to be a good fight, right. especially at this point in their right. careers. Even as like even if you view it as a fun pure kickboxing fight, like uh it's probably nobody's getting finished there, right? I mean, it's probably you're probably looking at a 15-minute uh, either slog or banger, depending on what these guys have have going for them on the night of. I'm not. I mean, I'm personally thinking, you know, Crow Cop Roy Nelson. I know it says here they're still trying to find a uh, an opponent for Roy Nelson. Uh, it doesn't. The event itself doesn't necessarily lose too much appeal for me with the absence of of uh, Crow Cop versus Roy Nelson. I mean, if you are a fan of the high level MMA, Rafael Carvalho versus Gegard Mousasi is going to be a good one anyway. Right, but. It, that would have benefited from just having the name Crow Cop Associate. Because sure. if you look at what's been successful for Bellator, it's a lot of the old guys whose best stuff is behind them. But, you know, the name still lives on. And you get people in the door with that. And then you hit them with Musasi Carvalho for the middleweight championship. Now you have to kind of rely on that to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you, which is a little bit of a tougher sell. Then again, though, I mean, remember that we did get excited about your boy Gegard Musasi going over there to Bellator. Now he has basically the fight that can make it seem like, okay, Gegard Mousasi is a, a capital G guy in the middleweight division again, even if it's with a different organization. You know, you can kind of remind people then, hey, he exited the UFC with a little bit of a head of steam, uh, and he might have a claim to at being the actual best middleweight in the world. Who knows? Although if you're Bellator and you're looking at this, do you feel like Gegard, you need Gegard Mousasi to win this fight? That is an interesting question because Rafael Carvalho is good. He is good. He's real good. He's won 15 fights in a row. Uh, the last handful of them in Bellator, obviously, and he is the 185 pound champion there. He's, he's got wins over Melvin Manhoff, uh, and Joe Schilling, uh, and Brandon Halsey, who I believe once said that he does everything hard, train hard, fuck hard, fight hard. I, you, you, I think got the order wrong. I think fuck hard comes last. Right, sure, yeah. But I believe it was Brandon Halsey that said that. Uh, so, like, Rafael Carballo is no joke, and yet, like, he is he's one of those dudes. I think this will be a fun fight to watch, by the way, but Carvalho is one of those dudes where, like, if somebody just asked you out of the blue who's the Bellator middleweight champion, you'd be like, uh, did... Musasi win that shit yet? Yes. Right? Like, you'd have to think about it for a second before you came up with Rafael Carvalho's name. So, like, 
along the same lines of thinking that it would have helped Bellator to have Krokop on this fight card because Krokop is Krokop, I think it would help Bellator to have Gegard Mousasi as middleweight champion because he's the dream catcher. Right, or are you hoping, like, hey, either way it goes, even if Gegard Mousasi loses, then Carvalho becomes a guy that people have to start thinking right. seriously about because he beat Gegard Mousasi. And, and that's a, a fair position to take because if you look at, you know, especially as Bellator champion, his string of wins, uh, where, you know, if you beat Melvin Manhoff twice at this point, okay. I mean, cool. We all are going to show out to see a, a Melvin Manhoff fight because of the sheer explosive violence potential. But then, like, Alessio Sakara was not really in a position where anybody was talking about him as one of the top middleweights. So, right, and that's but, the one they went over there and did in Italy. Right. You you could really use a high-profile win for a guy like Carvalho if he's going to be your guy. And then, plus, Musasi has that thing where people feel to some extent, rightly or wrongly, like he's a known quantity. We right. saw who he could beat in the UFC, who he couldn't. Uh, and if he goes over and he becomes Bellator champion, then maybe people are looking at it like, well, okay, he wasn't the best middleweight in the UFC, or at least he never actually proved that he was the best middleweight in the UFC, but he is in the best, but he is now the best middleweight in Bellator, so it just tells you that the quality of competition is lower. But if Carvalho goes out there and smashes him, then we still don't know who could actually stand up and, and stop the, the Rafael Carvalho train. Right, well, uh, Musasi did finish his UFC career on a string of wins, right? He right. beat Chris Weidman, he beat Vitor, he beat Uriah Hall. Like He he did have the loss to Jacare, and lost to Uriah Hall, Leona Machida, during the time that he was in the UFC. But like he's one of the few guys who closed it out kind of like on his own terms. Right. And on a win streak, then came over to Bellator, beat Alexander Shlomenko. So uh, he seems like a perfectly, like you say he's a known quantity, but and in some ways he is. But, like, you know, if he becomes Bellator 185-pound champion, I think it's sort of like a mutually beneficial relationship for both parties because, like, it elevates Bellator because the suddenly the middleweight champ is not a guy that we have to think for a while before we figure out who it is. And, like, you get some gold on Musasi, and he looks, you know, like one of the best 185-pound fighters in the world again. Uh, and, you know, if you're Bellator, maybe it's a, a question here of what kind of Musasi fight shows up here because – you know, the young Vagabond can look explosive and deadly and, and uh, hand out some, some TKO losses, as can Rafael Carvalho. But he's also a guy who sometimes gets himself into, into like a sort of a lackluster, like almost uh, listless sort of affair, right? He's like, he hasn't always looked uh, like he's had that killer instinct. So I think if you're Bellator, your best case scenario is you get an absolute barn burner out of this thing. And even if Rafael Carvalho wins, maybe some people who weren't all that familiar with him have sort of a holy shit moment and he becomes a guy that then they want to come back for. Yeah. Uh, does this still, even with the loss of Crow Cop, Roy Nelson, does this still feel like Bellator 200 is a real big event? It doesn't feel like UFC 100 okay, or, or UFC 200. It also does not come with the same price tag. No, that's true. And once again, we've got a weekend with back-to-back uh, -back events, Bellator on Friday, UFC on Saturday. Uh, so it's going to be a question of how you want to spend your time, if nothing else. Uh, ben, one, one more thing. I don't know if we wanted to talk about Michael Page versus David Rickles. Uh, the caveman. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's not... Uh, still Michael, there. Still around. Yes. The, will, he'll, will he be the, like the most credible opponent for, for MVP Michael Venom Page up to this point. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. The thing I was going to say was, I don't know if you looked down here on the prelims to notice that Charlie Ward is on this card versus Lewis King. And so I guess my question is, 
do we need to put an ankle monitor on Conor McGregor? Because mm-hmm. you'll recall it was a Charlie Ward fight his last time out in Bellator where McGregor showed up wild and out. I mean, not the most wilding that we've seen him. Yeah. It was merely he has the, since wilder. He has since wilded harder. But up to this point, it was the most wild and out we had seen from uh, Conor McGregor on holiday, <laughs> where he slaps a Bellator cage side official and like kind of shoves referee Mark Goddard. We got another Charlie Ward fight on our hands here, Ben. Are we going to put pictures of Conor McGregor in the windows? Do not let this man in. Well, at the very least, security should be aware. Security uh, should be made aware of the potential for some wild and out. Because don't act like uh, there there hasn't been an escalation of Conor McGregor's behavior since that incident. An escalation of the wild and out. That's right. He has only wilded out harder. I mean, this if, if we're following a trajectory here, he kind of has to hit somebody with an entire table at this event <laughs> right like and don't oh, don't even man. think about what happens if there's like a controversial stoppage and his guy loses or something or his guy loses a, a questionable decision charlie ward goes out there loses a split decision to lewis king that it looks like maybe he, he could have got jesus christ conor mcgregor will light the place literally on fire yeah security if you see a guy wearing a suit that says fuck you all over it <laughs> in its pinstripes Get on the walkie-talkie. Get on the walkie-talkie and... Call that one in. Circle to your right. Also, maybe if you see somebody wearing a fur coat with, like, no shirt on underneath. Also, maybe something you're going to want to pay attention to. That's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, the Echo Arena in beautiful Liverpool, England, will be the site for UFC Fight Night 130. Main evented, as everyone knows, by Stephen the Wonder Man Thompson, taking on Darren the Gorilla Till. That's still just not a nickname that rolls off the tongue for me. No, and it doesn't feel like it applies as well as I want it to for him. If his last name was Tilla or Tiller, okay. I would I could say Darren the Gorilla Tiller or Darren the Gorilla Darren the Gorilla Till. Just it doesn't land for me. Somehow. It feels like your your mouth feels like it wants to keep making noises. Yeah, is Stephen Thompson being cast in the Damian Maya role in this fight? Is he there to put Darren Till over in his hometown? If he is, it's far from a sure thing. That that's how it'll go down, especially against Darren, the fifth Beatle Till. Because Stephen Thompson, just stylistically, is going to be a tough fight for a guy like Darren Till. I'm not saying that Darren Till can't win that fight. You know, big guy for the division, hits hard, aggressive, believes in himself, going to go out there and, and go after Stephen Thompson. But Stephen Thompson, a real technician in the stand-up game and can just... He's one of the few guys in that division who can nullify your entire offense just with his feet, just on sheer footwork and distance. And we've seen it. You know, we saw it against Rory McDonald, where he can force you into a situation where you're choosing between bad options. And if you don't have some other thing that you can pull out there to, to threaten him with, you can end up having a rough night. And not only can you end up 
not beating a guy like that, you can end up looking terrible in the process. You you can win a decision over him even and end up looking terrible in the process. So if the plan here is like, well, Stephen Thompson's a guy who if you beat him, you're suddenly and instantly a contender. I don't know. Feels like Donald Cerrone was a better bet for that than than Stephen Thompson is. Yeah, well, Stephen Thompson clearly has a lot of that high-level experience having fought for the title. And up to this point, you're right, Donald Cerrone is the uh, jewel in the crown of Darren Till. Uh, and this would certainly be the biggest win of his UFC career to date, uh, at least the highest profile win over a guy that we have all recognized as being right up there among the elite of the division uh, throughout his, his UFC career. Uh, and Darren Till is one of these dudes like who, as far as I'm concerned, sort of fits into... Uh, the same mold as like a Kamaru Usman sort of guy, even though they're different stylistically as, as one of these guys who like has all the potential in the world and seems like a guy, especially if you're looking for a new Michael Bisping to come along and kind of carry the banner for you in England, if you are going to continue, uh, you know, European expansion and, and doing regular shows in the UK, uh, you could do a lot worse than to have a guy like Darren Till sort of leading the charge. And obviously he needs to get over the hump against Steven Thompson here uh, to prove that, that he can be that guy. Although you just look at the, uh, you look at the, the locales of the UFC fights for Darren Till. He had the first one in Brazil. And since then Dublin, Ireland, Stockholm, Sweden, Rotterdam, Nether Netherlands. And then of course against uh, Cerrone in Gdansk. Uh, so it's kind of clear, at least to me, where we're going with Darren Till. International literally, literally where we are going with him. European champion, Darren Till? Yeah, that's right. Throw the European strap on the guy. I still, I want us to hearken back, all the way back to uh, March of this year, where Darren Till showed up wearing that uh, sweater that looked like a ransom note uh, at uh, one of the UFC events. Forget which one. Um, and to announced that he and they remember they announced Darren Till was going to headline this event in Liverpool no opponent at the time it was just that was enough to which kind of if you're Stephen Thompson tells you a little bit about maybe where the UFC's heads at regarding Darren Till uh and he went on the broadcast and dropped this one on us forget the T-Mobile Arena forget Madison Square Garden it's never been done at Liverpool and everywhere around the world people know what scoozers are like there's never a UFC event that's going to be like the 27th of May in Liverpool and i guarantee that to everyone in the world all 9 billion people Liverpool that night is the place to be or to watch it on TV uh and then a little later on when i come out to those drums of Phil Collins you're going to know that i'm the fucking man Scoozer is uh people from Liverpool. Slang for people from Liverpool. Yes. Okay. So I think I, I don't know I think what I, they're like. I think I followed all that although you're right I don't know what they're like. Is Liverpool going to be the place to be in the entire world? For all 9 billion people? All, well, we can't all. We couldn't all squeeze into the Echo Arena. We can watch it I on TV. I don't know what the capacity is there but it's not 9 billion. I think it's only like 8 billion. Uh I mean I'll say this it's an appropriately difficult challenge for him. If the UFC had like picked out somebody where they were like, all right, here's somebody Darren Till could smash in Liverpool. Right. I mean, for one thing, that would have been not dissimilar from what ended up happening when Conor McGregor headlined a fight pass event and from Dublin, beat up Diego Brandao, and everybody went absolutely batshit insane over it. But given him Stephen Thompson, that does feel like uh, you might end up just letting some of the air out of your own hype bubble here. Yeah, well, it's another one of those matchmaking decisions that has the opportunity to go kind of wrong, uh, you would assume, from the way that, that they would prefer that it goes. Uh, on the Stephen Thompson side of things, though, Ben, 
Like, are we worried that the 35-year-old Wonder Man is going to shuffle into sort of we've seen the best of this guy territory if he can't get it done against Darren Till? He comes in off the win over uh, Jorge Masvidal at UFC 217, but prior to that, uh, he had had the two-fight stretch against Tyron Woodley. One of them was a draw. One of them was a loss. Uh, prior to that, he had been undefeated since his UFC 145 victory or loss to Matt Brown back in 2012. So a long string of wins for Stephen Thompson. Uh, is this like sort of a litmus test fight for him? If he loses it, are you inclined to say like, hmm, maybe the Wonder Man's time has, has not necessarily come and gone, but like uh, the, the days when we thought the sky was the limit for him may be gone? Well, it seems like I've even heard him making some kind of comments about how it seems like the UFC does not want him to fight for the belt again, at least as long as you know Tyron Woodley is holding it down. And you can kind of understand why. But if you're Stephen Thompson, maybe you just resign yourself to like, all right, just give me all your contenders then, and I will eliminate them one by one until you have no choice but to give me a title shot again. Uh, and... You know, this is not a bad deal for him at all to get to go in there against a guy like Darren Till, who everybody's really hot on. If you can go in there and win that fight, then people have to start having that conversation about you again. They really have no choice. Also, though, I'm glad you pointed out, we've talked before about how Stephen Thompson should not get to continue calling himself Wonder Boy at the age of 35. 35 years old. You def If you are in a main event fight and you're fighting a guy who is 10 years younger than you, there should be only one of you who is allowed to have boy in his nickname. <laughs> you know, the worst thing about when Stephen Thompson fights is that I walk around for days afterwards with that Tenacious D song stuck in my head. That's the worst thing, huh? Well, I mean, what else is bad about watching Stephen Thompson fight? I mean, the Tyron Woodley fights, I guess, were not crowd pleasers, but he's mostly one of those sort of like well, the new breed of karate fighter that acts like he's in a damn video game. But this time, what's gonna you're going to hear the Tenacious D song, but then... Darren Till's going to come out to those drums of Phil Collins. True. You're going to know he's the fucking man. It's going to be a race to see which one can get stuck in my head first. Do you want to know a completely useless stat? Of course I do. And I mean, this one, I'm not even, this may not, this isn't even a stat. Okay. It's more of a coincidence. (laughs) This is really sounding great. Darren Till and Stephen Thompson have both won fight of the night honors during bouts that ended in a draw. Huh. Okay. Stephen Thompson, when he fought uh, Tyron Woodley to a draw and won a fight of the night honor, and then uh, Darren Till against Nicholas Dalby in October 2015 ended in a draw and was named fight of the night. When was the last time that happened, Ben, that two guys who've won fight of the night for draws are going to fight each other? I really, I could not tell you. Scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of uh, statistical analysis. I learned nothing there, but thank you. I told you it was useless. I said up front, do you want to know a useless stat? Yeah, I blame myself. This is sort of a one-fight fight card, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. Neil Magny against Craig White. He's your co-main, if you want to call it that. Okay. Arnold Allen against Mads Burnell. Oh, yeah, Mads. Mads, that's... Uh-huh. Jason Knight versus Makwan Amirkani. Okay. I like Makwan Amirkani, and right. I like Jason Knight. Yeah, so there's there's a decent fight. And then you got Dave, Davey Grant against Manny Bermudez and Eric Spicely versus Darren Stewart. Is Davey Grant and the Monkees? Yes, Blade the Maracas, okay. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the guy that wore the hat, so you knew who he was. Elias Theodoro versus Trevor Smith way down there on the Fight Pass prelims. That's your Fight Pass prelim main event. Yeah. Featured prelim. That's right, even though it is... Com- it comprises 50% of all the fights on Fight Pass there. 
You want to do just saying stuff? Sure. Then we'll get out of here. Are we going to do a joint just saying stuff, or did you think of your own? No, let's, I, I mean, this was my own, but uh, you, you also you barged in on it, so uh, I guess we'll do it together. WWE SmackDown is going to Fox in a reported five-year, $1 billion deal. Ben, so this week, what are we just saying? Well, what, what did you want to just say about it? I was going to say, uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, if you're the UFC, Ben, and you're walking around yeah, feeling good about your five-year, $750 million deal that you got for ESPN+, Plus, thinking you're going to cash in when you get back to the negotiating table with Fox, I think you got to wonder if they just broke the bank to land Vince McMahon's B-show. SmackDown is the, of the two WWE television products, it's the lesser of the two. And Fox is just going to slide one a billion dollars across the table to land that. Well, then I am going to add to that by just saying that I read this Hollywood Reporter report about it, uh, which I assume is what you're referencing here. Uh, and I want to read this line to you. The deal would split WWE programming rights with NBC, which is expected to retain Raw. SmackDown is averaging 2.59 million viewers a week so far this year. I'm just saying, if you're the UFC and you've seen some kind of ratings declines, even for your shows on Fox, uh, this is one where you might be starting to think, hey, could a couple guys like Chad Dundas and Ben Folks maybe start themselves a pro wrestling podcast? <laughs> Would you start thinking, can, could Darren Till and Stephen Thompson maybe body slam each other yeah. out there this weekend, if that's what the people maybe, want to see? Maybe you get Conor McGregor to come over and hit somebody with a table at your show instead of Bellator. I mean, we're trending that way anyway. Just saying. Why not? Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at Bellator 200 and UFC Fight Night 130. And then we may, in fact, start to look ahead to UFC Fight Night 131. Rivera versus Morace. That's on June 1st. So we got that coming up from the Adirondack Bank Center. I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice. In Utica, New York. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So do we want to start spitballing names for a pro wrestling podcast now? We did not have an easy time coming up with names for the MMA podcast. And arguably did not do a good job. <laughs> and, and did not come up with the name. Didn't Sarah come up with the name? Probably. So we need to get her on the horn ask her where she's at with a, with a wrestling Yeah. We gotta figure out what's happening in the rest of the day. So you're saying we got enough going on?